I'd like to <clears throat> start this evening with a poem by Naomi Shihab Nye. She's a Palestinian-Iranian poet. And she titled this poem, Adios. It's a good word rolling off the tongue, no matter what language you were born with. Use it, learn it where it begins, the small alphabet of departure. How long it takes to think of it, then say it, then be heard. Marry it more than any golden ring. It shines, it shines, wear it on every finger till your hands dance, touching everything easily, letting everything easily go. Strap it to your back like wings or a kite tail, the stream of air behind a jet. If you are known for anything, let it be the way you rise out of sight when your work is finished. Think of the things that linger, leaves, cartons, and napkins, the damp smell of mold. Think of things that disappear. Think of what you love best, what brings tears into your eyes, something that said adios to you before you knew what it meant or how long it was for. Explain little, the word explains itself. Later, perhaps, lessons following lessons, like silence following sound. If you hang around this world, this world long enough, this Dharma world, one of the phrases that you will hear most often repeated is the phrase, let go. We use it a lot. We tell ourselves to let go. Teachers tell us to let go. We tell other people to let go. <laughs> people tell us to let go. When my children were younger, having grown up around Dharma centers, which is, I have to tell you, mixed blessings. Um, <clears throat> whenever I was a little vexed or objecting to something they were doing, they would look me in the eye and say, Mom, don't you think it's time to let go? <laughs> it's a bit of a showstopper. I think we, we use this phrase because some of the words or phrases that we see in the earlier text feel both a little maybe alien and sometimes they feel a little bit cold or harsh or impossible. But they're worth noting what those phrases are in some of the earlier texts. The Buddha talks a lot about relinquishing talks a lot about unbinding. Unbinding, I love that, unbinding. Talks about disentangling. And talks about renunciation. Not in a context of something that is punitive or harsh or judgmental, but actually speaks about renunciation always in the context of a path to happiness and as a path to freedom and the deepest liberation of the human heart. I have a friend who uh, worries about flying, flying in airplanes, by the way, not levitating. <laughs> she, she, she worries about flying. 
she thinks it's a, a, a kind of a illogical thing that could happen, that these things stay in the air. So, so she worries, and, and she knows really how painful it is to worry, and, and she tells herself over and over again, she said, that I really should let go. But then she tells herself, she hears this other little voice that comes in that says, but after all, somebody needs to worry. <laughs> because if nobody worried, maybe this thing would fall out of the, fly, out of the sky. I think this is our, our kind of like our human dilemma. We probably all know in our life too often the very painfulness of, of holding things too tightly, the, the painfulness of clinging, the painfulness of grasping, how it feels like a closed room, an obsessive space, a, a, a prison, actually. And, and we know there's, there's very, very little happiness in those moments when we hold so tightly to anything. And somehow the outcome emotionally, physiologically, psychologically, is always the same in the, in the kind of feelings of contractedness and the, the kind of anxieties that can blight our life and, in truth, really leech the joy from our days. And we tell ourselves, I mean, how many times have you ever told yourself to let go? And have you noticed how ineffective it often seems? <laughs> it's like, it just doesn't seem to work. <laughs> seems like a great idea. It seems like a really good idea. But on the ground, it just somehow doesn't seem to work. And, and we notice we even scold ourselves that it is not working when we're telling ourselves to let go in the midst of some great obsession. But sometimes there's a lot of underlying belief systems that, that kind of uh, imbue that action of grasping, that action of clinging. There's sometimes under, underlying belief systems where we kind of feel that it is our clinging that might keep people close to us, that it's our grasping that might even protect us from loss and from our world's crumbling. We might feel that it is clinging that somehow protects others and ourselves in some unseen way. And at times we might even mistake clinging for connectedness. There's a simple reality in all of our lives that we are all asked, have been asked, are being asked, and will be asked to let go countless times in our life if we're going to live this life fully, not lost in the past in what has gone by, not lost in our hopes about the future, and not lost in our preoccupations in the present. And we all live a life where many things let go of us, People disappear from our lives. We lose things we've valued. They leave us. Events that we treasured have gone. The Buddha proposed a very simple formula that 
clinging and grasping and holding, being bound, are experiences that are laced with anguish and that they lead to greater suffering. And that the degree of freedom and happiness and peace we can know in this life is equal to the degree that we find in ourselves a capacity to unbind, a capacity to let go, for relinquishing. And in the Buddhist teaching of liberation, this unbinding is taught in an in an uncompromising way as truly being central to a path of happiness and freedom. And actually, my first teacher said to me that renunciation is an act of compassion for yourself. That it is an act of compassion for all beings, for our planet, for the people, for the world that we live in. Renunciation, though, this quality of unbinding, relinquishing, renouncing, never stands alone in this path. It is one of the three wise intentions that are said to form the basis of wise action, wise speech, wise relationship. But this, under this, this wise intention of relinquishing is always interwoven with the other two wise intentions, which are the intentions for kindness and the intention of compassion. Sitting upon or guided by a life of integrity. Now, as we practice here and, and explore this teaching for ourselves, I hope we, we really do begin to sow in ourselves the, the seeds of possibility, the possibilities of really very profound inner freedom. But in sowing those seeds, knowing that we are part of a very long tradition of how many unknown people, countless people have traveled this path before us, travel this path with us, and will likely travel this path in the future. And it is a tradition of relinquishing. It's a tradition of unbinding, learning moment to moment what it means to untangle our heart from confusion and fear and rage and craving. The path and the practice of unbinding is an insight path. It really leads very directly to understanding what the Buddha talked about as being the three universal laws, the characteristics of all that is born, the reality that there is unsatisfactoriness in life that asks to be understood and responded to the unarguable reality of endless change and instability from which none of us are exempt, and the whole question of self and non-self that we're all invited to question for ourselves and to explore. I think people find themselves leaning much more easily towards the phrase letting go, even unbinding. Renunciation can stick a bit in the throat. Um, It's a difficult word, I think, to embrace, and it's a very challenging quality to embody. 
And I, I think one of the reasons for that is that this is a word that seems to hold some kind of echoes of coldness or disconnection when we know very well that what our hearts long for is more connection and intimacy with all things. And the reality is that we are all relational beings. We interact with one another, we care together, we struggle together. And at first sight, renunciation seems almost a denial of relatedness. Um, And it seems to imply not caring or the need to get rid of something. And apart from all of those questions, we experientially just all know just how difficult it feels to let go of anything at all and how embedded the emotional habit pattern of clinging and grasping feels to be in our life. And actually, if, if we trace you know, that holding, I hope you all have a felt sense of what clinging is. Does anybody not know <laughs> what, what grasping is? <laughs> okay. And we see how often it's going on. You know, we can cling to a sound, we can grasp hold of a sight, we can cling to a body sensation, we can grasp hold of lunch, the last meditation, the thoughts about the future, the happiness we want, we can grasp hold of the people we love and just as much with the people we struggle with. Oh, and then we can cling to thoughts and memories and hopes and roles and my space. And we could really very well wonder what our life would look like without clinging. Have you ever raised that question for yourself? (laughs) What would my life look like without clinging? I mean, what would get me out of bed in the morning? (laughs) You know, what would get me moving through my day? You know, what would kind of like, uh, yeah, just stir me into some sort of animation? And and sometimes we could imagine that a life without clinging might look directionless, it might look bleak, it might feel fearful, and it certainly probably does feel to be unknown. So when we reflect upon this quality of relinquishing, unbinding, renunciation, letting go, whatever we want to call it, I think it's very important that we're absolutely crystal clear about what we are really being asked to let go of. Not the people we love, not our capacity to love itself. We're not being asked to let go of life, we're not being asked to let go of a a full and vibrant world of the senses, we're not being asked to let go of our aspirations and our relationships. What we are really asked to let go of is suffering and struggle and its causes. It's very important to be clear about this. We're learning actually often moment to moment and step by step what it is to relinquish, unbind from the sorrow of a contracted and fearful heart. We're learning to let go of many of the afflictive emotions of fear and ill will and rage and blame, confusion, not as an end in itself, but so that the loveliness of kindness and compassion and wakefulness can really flourish. 
the question of ours last night about you know motivation in practice, and I think what we're really learning to do in this path is learning to be less in love with, less enchanted by confusion. And we're really learning to love wakefulness. And I cannot think of a more abiding or inspiring motivation in this journey. Now, in my own experience, there is no relinquishing, there is no unbinding without understanding and without insight. Uh, renunciation, like all qualities that we sp- speak about in this path, has near enemies. And I think if without understanding, all that we have is control and aversion and pushing away and should and get out of this. This is not letting go. This is much more in the realm of rejection and resistance. And these are kind of like the shadow side of renunciation. And, and this, this is easy to see in life. We turn our backs on things that we don't feel able to meet. Or we walk away from things that we, we tell ourselves or feel in ourselves. It's impossible to understand or to approach. Or we turn away because we're fearful that we don't have the capacity to address at times things that seem quite impossible to address. But this is this turning our back on is not relinquishing, is not unbinding. This is simply aversion in a slightly more sophisticated form. I think in understanding, the understanding that underlies relinquishing and unbinding is, is actually not that complicated. It doesn't mean it's easy. But it's not that complicated. What what we're actually asked to understand as a basis for relinquishing is to, to understand the way things actually are. We're asked to align our hearts, align our minds, align our lives with the core actualities, what I refer to as being the unarguables of every human life. The unarguables of every human life. Loss discontent, pain, disappointment that we meet in this life, the fact that we age, we are ill, we die, as do those that we love, the reality that nothing stands still for us or is actually graspable despite our best efforts, and that it's really exceedingly difficult to find an enduring and reliable me in the midst of all of this. As so much of the struggle and so much of the turmoil that we can and do experiences in this life is born not so much of these core realities, which can indeed be very sad, they can even be heartbreaking, but much of our real struggle and torment is born of our reactions to these Unarguables, the arguments that we have with the unarguable, that the argument that we never win. There can be a good deal of dissonance 
between the simple truths of this moment and the way that we want it to be. Or insist that it should be. The renunciation or relinquishing or unbinding is actually really concerned with healing this dissonance, this gap, this discrepancy between the way things actually are and the way we insist upon them being. Because as long as actually we, we, we're in that lost in that insistence, we're actually somewhat disabled from responding to the way things are with the courage and the compassion and the wise action that is actually needed. And in ending that dissonance, there's a kind of healing. It brings to an end so much of the torment that is in truth optional. And there is much, you know, sometimes people get the impression that this, you know, Buddhism sometimes gets very bad press, you know, as being pretty grim and depressing and all concerned with bad news, you know, and we talk all about all the suffering all the time. And, uh, you know, it's, it's actually not, not at all. That. <laughs> There's a lot that's delightful in this life. The color of a sunset, the people we love, the wonderful meal, the people who care for us. On occasion, even a good sitting. (laughs) Being cared for. Being cared for. Um, And there's a good deal that's not so pleasant, isn't it? It's kind of how it is. Sometimes painful, sometimes uncomfortable. There's a good deal that's very sad. A lot of times we don't get what we want. That's the basic truth of it. If I ever think of the biggest lesson I ever learned from living in Asia for a number of years is that I never got what I wanted. (laughs) Almost never. 99% of the time, I never got what I wanted. It took me five years to figure there was some teaching in this, (laughs) in a slow learner. But there was something about, about never getting what you want. You, know, you never get the food what you want, you never get the bed you want, you never get the room without rats, you know, you never, you never get the body that doesn't have dysentery, you know, you never get the quiet space, you know, you know, I just never get, I never got what I wanted. I, I mean, you know, in terms of craving, a lot, I got a lot of very good things, but not in terms of craving. But we see that here, we don't have to go to Asia to experience that, do we? live five years with dysentery and rats. They just hang out in this world. There's a lot of times we don't get what we want, isn't there? Don't get what we want for lunch. You know, the other day I saw tempeh on the board here. You know, I'm a, I'm a non-tempeh person. You know, it's a kind of policy statement. I just, I, I just don't do tempeh. I thought, what a good day to go to the forest refuge for lunch. You know? <laughs> I have friends up at the forest refuge. I, what a good day to go visit my friends. Guess what was for lunch at the forest <laughs> refuge? <laughs> and I turned up the tiny room and I saw the tempeh and I thought, oh, you know, relinquish. <laughs> relinquish. How many times we have sittings that somehow fail our expectations? I'm sure we all have difficult people in our life. We have a lot of injustice in our world. We have illness, we have pain, the pain of loss. And, you know, we're all asked to embrace this in our life. It's a personal reality felt by all of us in very, very different ways that we need to respond to and honor. But it's also a very universal reality, isn't it? 
if we, you turn around in this room and you just ask the person on either side of you if they have a life free from loss, if they have a life free from struggle, if they have a life free from pain, no one would answer that they're the exception. What I have really come to see, and I would really invite you, if you're interested, to take this on as a reflection, because it's a very important reflection in my life. What I've come to see is that my relationship to both pleasure and pain, the relationship that I have to pleasure and pain, really comes to define me as a human being and actually comes to govern how I live my life and how I engage with the world. If I fear pain, if I only know how to react to pain with aversion, with anxiety, with rage, with blame, my heart will surely become agitated and contracted. I will have, surely in its wake, a waterfall of fearful thinking. I will surely then endlessly engage in choices and acts to avoid pain. That is a life governed by aversion to pain. This is called grasping and clinging. We can know this deeply in ourselves. It's not only in relationship to pain, it's relationship to the pleasant too. I can appreciate that which is lovely. I can appreciate that which gladdens my heart. And I can also take the next step, the endless journey into clinging to pleasure. My wants turn to needs. My needs turn to dependency. And my dependency solidifies a sense of insufficiency. And I will also have a waterfall of thinking about how to strategize in my life, to have more of what I want, how to increase it, how to maintain it. And I will actually come to feel that my life might very well crumble if I don't succeed in maintaining and holding on to the pleasant experience, the pleasant sensation, the pleasant event, the pleasant thought even the person I care for most deeply. So I will, even in the midst of pleasure, experience the painfulness of clinging and grasping. I think to really understand a path of wakefulness, a path of freedom, we are asked to explore and to be willing to meet, actually, the foundations of clinging and our own relationship moment to moment, to pleasure and pain. Sometimes that's an uncomfortable exploration. But it's a genuine reflection. It's a genuine investigation. It's almost like the homework of our day or the homework of our lives. How does our relationship to pleasure, the pleasant, and our relationship to the unpleasant define who we believe ourselves to be as human beings? and how we live our lives. What we're really asked to, to see in, in what is really taught in this tradition is that clinging and grasping, we're asked to understand, is only an intensification, a magnification, a continuum of craving and aversion. It's not something separate. It's not something apart. It's only a continuum. 
You know, for example, you know, you, you can see it. I mean, you know, we have chanters amongst us and non-chanters amongst us, you know. So perhaps you come up in the evening sitting, you know, and some chanting's offered. Oh, it's really pleasant. You really enjoy it. I'd like more of that. I think I'll write a note. You know, we go up chanting in the morning, too. And why don't we just chant all day? I really like it, you know. Nobody's listening to me. I need, you know, my practice would be so much better. Everybody's practice would be so much better if we just chanted all the time, you know. And pretty soon, you know, we're in, you couldn't just feel it happen, you know. You might be a non-chanter. Oh, not more of that stuff, you know. No, I don't think I'll come to the sitting. No, no, maybe I should. Good yogis do. I'll come there and I'll come in with this, you know, and I want this. They really shouldn't chant. It's too religious, you know, it's too Buddhist, you know. And we can just feel the continuum. We can just feel the continuum. And you can feel it in your body. You know, you can feel it in your mind. You can feel it emotionally. You can feel your world getting smaller and smaller as the craving or the aversion magnifies, intensifies, until actually it becomes a compulsion, doesn't it? Actually, sometimes when the Buddha spoke about freedom, he actually described it as the freedom from the compulsions of craving and aversion. In my own experience, I don't think any, well, I think for all of us, we're not short of opportunities to explore this continuum of craving and aversion to clinging and grasping. It's not a demand that these patterns or these reactions don't arise. They do. But they're asked to be understood. First of all, very important to get a felt sense of this. Get a felt sense of what it is when your mind is lost in craving or your mind is lost in, in, in aversion or clinging. Get a sense of how that feels, the sense of freedom within it or the lack of freedom within it. Hmm? Is there balance? Is there spaciousness? Is there kindness? Is there compassion in those moments? Is there confidence? And I think we could take questions like that into all the moments of craving and aversion, rather than having aversion to aversion or judgment about craving, to really take much more interesting questions into those moments. Where is the kindness in this moment? Where is the freedom? Where is the sense of spaciousness? To learn to, sometimes those, it's very questions like that that interrupt the, interrupt the continuum, give us moment for pause, to, and they may actually be a key to unbinding. Um. I was going to read you something. I still am. Mary Oliver once wrote in part of her poem that every year everything I have ever learned in my lifetime leads back to this. To live in this world you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal. To hold it against your bones knowing your own life depends on it. And when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. Now, renunciation or this quality of letting go, unbinding, it's actually not something we do. 
It's an embodiment of an understanding of these universal laws. And one of the primary universal laws we really have to understand is impermanence, the unarguable nature of change. The Buddha once said that just like the elephant's footprint is the greatest footprint in the jungle, impermanence is the greatest of all insights. Now that's interesting. Because what does it mean? It actually means this universal law of change actually means that nothing can be grasped. Now, it's so interesting that, that here we have one of the biggest pieces of discrepancy practice. <laughs> because, I mean, is anybody here, is this anybody saying first time you've heard about impermanence? <laughs> I think so. You could all give a talk on impermanence, couldn't you? I mean, we all could. We could all get up here and give a talk on impermanence. I mean, nobody, does anybody, it's not something you believe in, is it? It's not like something like, I don't believe in impermanence. <laughs> or I believe in impermanence. It's not like a belief system, is it? We know it. We know it. And we have these remarkably prolonged bouts of amnesia. <laughs> so, we forget. We could all have incredibly deep and philosophical discussions about the reality of change, couldn't we? Oh, yes. We nod wisely. To live in the light of impermanence, this is really challenging. To understand its implications and to live in the light of those implications, that is really challenging. Sometimes we're really happy about it. The bell at the end of a difficult city, the end of a root canal, <laughs> the healing of a broken leg. When the thunderstorm comes and breaks this heat wave, we will be so happy. <laughs> but we're not always so happy about it. We're often unhappy about it. The things we can't allow ourselves to lose. The changes we can't embrace. Clinging is almost a mechanism we use to pretend that impermanence and change, uh, that which we ch that, uh, around that which we cherish, that'll stop it from happening. Clinging is a kind of mechanism of trying to keep something close that is already changing into something else to protect us from loss. It is not to say that change or loss is emotionally neutral. It is certainly not. It can be separated from those that we love. The loss of people we care about can be heartbreaking. But it's also true. And it's part of the fabric of all of our life. Clinging is noticeably lacking not only in resonance of the way things actually are, but it's often noticeably lacking in compassion and kindness for ourselves and all of those around us. Sometimes we tell ourselves even that loss is a failure. I, I hear people in, in this culture even telling themselves that illness is a failure. You know, that somehow they didn't live right. You know, they didn't exercise enough, they didn't eat right, you know, and somehow it's their fault that they're ill. 
parents tell themselves it's their fault when their children change in ways they find it hard to accept. And we see how often this, how often the change we can't accept is surrounded by this quality of blame, sense of failure, as if we've somehow been unable in our, in our mission to keep things fixed in place. Well, we see the way that clinging works in many different domains in our life. One of the domains it works in, of course, is in the realm of perception. That we see this endless endeavor in our minds through perception to kind of fix things in place, to solidify things. Sometimes what we don't always recognize is that the the actually only thing that ever keeps anything fixed in place is our view of it, not the reality. And how many times we go through our life, you know, you know, with all these phrases like we say, oh, someone's a terrible person or they're an insensitive person or they're a cold person, or we do the same to ourselves. We fix ourselves in place with views and perceptions. I'm a terrible person, or I'm inadequate, or I'm unlovable. I can almost think of no greater act of compassion for ourselves or another than to liberate ourselves and to liberate others from our fixed views and perceptions of them or of ourselves. And to allow another and to allow ourselves to be the fluid and changing unfolding beings that we are, filled with possibilities. The Dalai Lama, in teaching about impermanence, he encouraged people to reflect on what has already disappeared. Might be our youth, might be some interest or passion that absorbed us at some time in our life, might be some sense of capacity, the people we have loved who are gone, the ten thousands of experiences and events that once featured in our lives and are now memories. Think of the tens of thousands of thoughts we've had that have passed through our minds, and they're gone. Reflect upon the difficulties that we've met and experienced and that now part of our past and the vast number of obsessions and preoccupations that may have governed our hearts and minds at some time in our life that are no longer part of our present. I don't know if any of you have ever had this experience of going through family photo albums and you see yourself, you know, and it's, you almost don't recognize yourself, but when you think back, you think that was just such a consuming identity. You know, when you were a hippie and hated, you know, society, you know, some of you are too young for that, you know, and, you know, your relationship to law enforcement was pretty poor, too. Um, um, uh, you know, you, you think of the people you've, you fell in love with that you were sure you could never live without. You know, the crushes, the teenage crushes. It's, it's quite something. And it's gone. It's just gone. It's not like it's just hiding in the shadows somewhere waiting to pop out again. You know, it, it's just gone. What would have our life would be like if that was not so? 
if those tens of hundreds of thousands of thoughts and preoccupations were just kind of sitting all around us, you know, and just waiting to pop out at any moment, you know, we wouldn't be able to bear it. You know, we would be crushed. Imagine if we'd successfully grasped hold of all of those events. Suzuki Roshi once said that renunciation is not getting rid of the things of the world, but accepting that they pass away. I think often clinging and grasping is, is an essentially a futile endeavor to deny the reality of change. It's the argu- one of the arguments we have with the unarguable that really sets us at odds with the way things actually are. And so it's no wonder it creates so much suffering and pain. What would it be like for us to be able to deeply accept that all things will pass, will change, including ourselves? It feels like a kind of grace. It doesn't mean that we love less. It doesn't mean that we care less. It doesn't mean that we appreciate less. It doesn't make us more disabled in our capacity to respond to what needs to be responded to in this world. It might mean that we struggle less. I think sometimes in the midst of body torments that seem to have no end in heartaches that feel unbearable, to remind ourselves this too is a process. It will change into something else. I think we can come to know this in our bones. These are hard lessons for us to learn. Craving and aversion, I think, and clinging just happen so quickly. We see ourselves moving from openness to contractedness to clinging so quickly. It just feels so, so visceral. Yet our life keeps asking us to learn the lessons of unbinding, which are really no more than aligning our hearts and minds with the way things actually are, moment to moment, a thousand times in a single day. Loss and endings can be deeply sad. They're not neutral. But within sadness, there can be also a deep knowing and a stillness born of embracing the very natural laws that run through all of our lives. And I think this unbinding is a response of compassion and insight to the realities that none of us are exempt from. Unbinding is also really rooted, I think, in the very profound and deep understanding of non-self. When we hear the word, the, the word in Pali, anatta, non-self, not no-self, non-self, it, it's very important to understand these are not kind of ideologies. Again, this is not something I believe in or I don't believe in. It's something to be investigated. Because we see that underlying many of, our many, many of our emotional and psychological processes, underlying many of our reactions and fears and striving, underlying the, many of the choices we make, is this rather enduring belief system that all of this is me, all of this is mine, or it belongs to me, or it is who I am. It is, I think, significant to see that the view of I am is pretty much always a view of 
insufficiency. There's always a view of inner insufficiency, a culture of lack. And that culture of lack very much manifests in craving and aversion and clinging. I am my body, my past, my thoughts, my emotions, my role, never mind all of the grosser things in this life. All I've, I have accumulated or become. We don't even know how powerful this belief system actually is or this view is until you like come in the meditation room and see somebody else sitting in your chair. <laughs> then you'll see me. Or somebody disagrees with our views. That's a big one. Disagrees with our opinions. Disagrees with our worldview. Um, then we see the, the voice of clinging arising so strongly. Now, renunciation and binding is not absolutely, completely not concerned with erasing self. It's concerned with releasing the clinging to the view of self, which is always restricted. It's rooted in insufficiency. It is always finite. Because we could, I think, be fairly certain that if this most central domain of clinging to I am remains unquestioned, then grasping has license to continue throughout our lives. The view of self is also not emotionally neutral. Times the view of self is built around aversion to things I don't like about my body or my appearance or my, my mind or my emotions or my meditation. And we form a view usually expressed then through judgment. I'm hopeless, I'm fearful, I'm a failure, I'm not good enough. At times this story, of course, is, not, is told to us by others. You know, sometimes people take a kind of almost an exaggerated responsibility for their self-view when actually it may have been a view thrust upon them throughout the whole of their life. Sometimes the view of self is rooted in craving, again, around my body, my emotions, my thoughts. You know, I'm a good meditator, you know. I I ran the extra mile, I'm successful. You know, I'm, I'm a yogi. Sometimes the view is formed through, formed through clinging. And, and I think it's really good to look at this as a felt experience through the day. And if you, as, people sometimes get so puzzled by non-self, you know, feel it's so challenging and impossible to understand. And I think if you ever feel that way, it's a much better approach today to take to look for an enduring self. It's a better approach today to take. Look for an enduring, reliable, unchanging self in your experience. Pretty hard to find, but, but sometimes it's a more constructive approach to take rather than thinking, anatta, 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 non-self, non-self. Find, find the me. Find the elusive me. Have you ever seen those books, you know, the Where's Wally books? You know. <laughs> find the me, you know, hiding here, there, and everywhere. The view you had of yourself as a teenager is unlikely to be today's view. You don't have next year's view of yourself. You only have the moment's view. The sad self we can feel at breakfast looks absolutely nothing like the excited self in the lunch line. The apprehensive self before the interview group 
looks very, very different than the quite contented self sitting by the pond, appreciating the, the, the water, the, the bugs on the pond. And of course, some views are much more uh, frequent visitors. And some views of self tend to linger more, more long, longer. But it doesn't mean they're more true. It just means they've been repeated more frequently or clung to more frequently. What we actually see in our view of self is exactly the same impermanence, the same change that we see in all things. What we see is process. The Buddha kept coming out of the noun form and, in, noun form and into the verb form. That what we see in every moment is a mandala of, of process and conditions, shaping and reshaping into different forms and shape, moment to moment. We see process in all things, in our thoughts, in our bodies, in our memories, in our minds, in our views, arising and passing together. And what does clinging do? Clinging is actually the endeavor to superimpose a view of something solid upon something that is changing. It is no wonder we get into trouble. We try to create an enduring self out of a process of selfing. And I think surely we can surely appreciate the amount of freedom and the amount of spaciousness born of learning to take the self out of selfing, learning to relinquish the clinging. Non-self, it's not a thing. It's a deeply embodied understanding of the process of selfing. Now, what is really extraordinary is, you know, any of you who have been in practice for a while will have undertaken this contemplation of non-self. You will, you will have actually really undertaken the, the contemplation of seeing the process of selfing changing shape and form a, a zillion times in a single day. And, and many of you have been in practice for a while, even if you're just beginning, will have really just begun to get a sense that this too is a verb. Self is a verb. It's not a thing. Now, what is quite extraordinary is that we can see that and we can know that, and yet somehow we can, uh, and we know actually there's no enduring solid self at the center of all experience, and yet even so, we can assume in the light of that understanding that there is still some autonomous self that is outside of that sphere that is going to let go. that? How can you? What is this autonomous self that sits outside that lets go? It is no wonder we are so entirely unsuccessful at shouting ourselves to let go. Who is letting go? Like there's some autonomous, you know, independent self out here suddenly marches in with wisdom and says, I'll let go. I've seen there's nothing solid here. I've seen there's nothing changing here. But still here's this background me, the sort of invisible wise me who's going to march in and let go. This is not something we do. It is not something we do. And it's good to know that because it gives you a little bit of relief when you're sort of wondering after you've been shouting at yourself all day to let go of something, why it's not happening. Because it's not something we do. What the Buddha taught really is something quite different. He actually taught that craving and clinging and confusion are the conditions of clinging. These are the conditions of clinging. 
Okay? These are habitual, they are unconscious, they are impulsive, but craving, aversion, and clinging. Uh, craving, aversion, and confusion are the conditions of clinging. So what he said, what if, what if instead of engaging in that, we more consciously cultivated the conditions of letting go? Cultivated the conditions in which unbinding happens rather than us letting go. And he said the conditions of the conditions of unbinding are metta, compassion, equanimity. These are the conditions of unbind that allow unbinding to happen. These are conditions we can cultivate. This is no mystery, I would say, to any of you in your own experience. I am sure you have all had the experience on this retreat where you have been sitting and maybe you're really kind of agitated or you're a versus state or something, and a difficult thought arises and you notice it just sticks. It just sticks. And you start the whole proliferation business and, 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 and you just get obsessive and clinging. Have you noticed you're coming to another sitting or walking and the conditions of your mind are completely different? There's more spaciousness, there's more calm, there's more balance. Exactly the same thought will arise and it just moves through. It doesn't stick. So what has changed is actually not the content. What has changed is the conditions in which that content is arising. And this is actually what the path is really concerned with, is the cultivation of those inner conditions that allow letting go to let go of itself. Unbinding to unbind itself. This is the pathway of freedom of knowing how those conditions can be cultivated, how to cultivate the stillness within ourselves, where we put down the argument with the unarguable, where we cultivate the conditions in which craving and aversion really begin to fall away because they have no ground to plant their roots. It's learning to liberate the moment. It's also learning to liberate ourselves and others to be the fluid and changing beings that we are. I want to end with a poem by Marge Piercy. Learning to love differently is hard. Love with the hands wide open. Love with the doors hanging on their hinges, the cupboard unlocked, the wind roaring and whimpering in the rooms. Rustling the sheets and snapping the blinds that thwack like rubber bands in an open palm. It hurts to love wide open, stretching the muscles that feel as if they are made of wet plaster. Then of blunt knives and of sharp knives. It hurts to thwart the reflexes of grab, of clutch, to love and let go again and again. It pesters to remember the lover who's not in the bed, to hold back what is owed to the work that gutters like a candle in a cave, gutters like candle in a cave, without air, to love consciously, conscientiously, concretely, constructively. I can't do it, you say, it's killing me, but you thrive, you glow on the street like a neon raspberry. You float and sail, a helium balloon, 
bright bachelor's button blue and bobbing through life. Okay, for just a moment, quietly together. Thank you for your attention. So we have a walking period before the last sitting, when there may or may not be chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.